What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Glenn, Pat, it's time for new ads. It is time for new ads. They have new sponsors. But we've also got some remaining ones as of well course. that we've got to bless them. So it turns out we're actually behind because people jumped into our Patreon and sent us much money and we didn't realize. Until they said, oh, what's happening? Yeah. Hey, where's our ads? Yeah. Here it is. We're doing it. You know where you should get dog training equipment in North America now? Who? Mojo Dog Co. Mojo Dog Co. Yeah, mojodogco.com mm-hmm. is a website. There's a real store. It's in Chicago. Yep. But it's a website you can totally go to and they pretty much sell everything. They've got mills. They've got training gear. They've got apparel. There's food. There's dog beds. Like it's a legit store. I've and been you've there. been there. I've yeah. been there, yeah. Yeah, I, you've I, witnessed I, it firsthand. You've I, um, smelt the odors. You've tasted the food. You've run on the mills. I committed theft. I stole a tub. <laughs> I think I was allowed to take it. Too late now. I've got it. I, yep. I, I just trained with it today. So basically he's paying us Patreon money for you to steal his toys. Yeah. It's okay. a it's a great Klein tug. It's fantastic. A Klein tug? Yeah. Oh, you know who else sells a Klein tug? Uh, who? The Buffhead. The OG Buffhead. Really? Yes, he does. He does. Yeah. He, he, in fact, he does. I got from the Buffhead a Klein flirt pole which all the dogs favour over all the other ones. Really? Yes. They you like shouldn't that. allow toy preferences, Len. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. They do. They choose what they want. We have two places that you could get dog training equipment. Yes. MojoDogCode.com. Yeah, in North America. Yeah. And Einzawiener.Buffed. Yep. You know what's a really cool product? The Rowdy Hound Dog Kennel. It's the kennel that attaches, like it's a crate that attaches to your motorcycle. Yeah. So you can take your dog anywhere that you're traveling if you own a motorcycle and yep. you want to take your dog with you. If safely, I owned a motorcycle, safely, if safely. I owned a motorcycle or a dog that wanted to ride one, yep. I would 100% get one. I own a motorcycle. You should get one. I should get one. You should get one. I can see you a little Frenchie hanging yep. off the back of your motorbike. Mm. Yeah, I think that Mando would probably cause me to come off my bike. He yeah. would probably rock around like crazy on yeah. that thing. But yeah, a little, little dog like what George Kittridge does, mm-hmm. who's a wonderful bloke and a dear friend of ours. Sponsor of the show. Sponsor of the show. And he takes his little blue healer, which mm-hmm. is an Australian dog. Mm-hmm. And George has been out here in Australia. He knows all about Australia. He mm-hmm. stayed in Australia. He's done it all. Mm-hmm. But he actually takes his little blue healer and he rides her all around the state and he teaches other people how to do it as well with their dogs. So you know, not only does he sell the product, but he trains people on how to use it as well. That's great. It is. You know, he should get everybody to do a big road trip up to Canada. Yeah. You know what they could do in Canada? What's that? Go to Dancroft. Ah, oh, Dan Croft. Jeez, they could watch a puppy class there, couldn't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Ooh. And they're doing seminars as well. Really? Yeah, they've got seminars, they've got teaching, they've got education. But as I spoke to Daniel, who runs Dan Croft, mm-hmm. he was telling me all about their amazing puppy classes and they do some kick-ass social media. Yeah, they do. They've got some pretty extreme type of breeds over there that they've got them all under perfect control, like all these American Staffies, they've got all these bull breeds that people complain about, whinge about and say they can't be trained. And mm-hmm. Dan Croft has them doing not only 
beautiful stays, but they also have them on balls. Mm. So they have the dog, Incredible. you know, like inside a tyre and the dog's doing beautiful drop stays while they're at peace and at harmony and somebody's walking around, all the owners are there with the dogs. They're having a great time. Incredible. Yeah. Oh, I bet those dogs are well-conditioned and healthy. Yep. Yeah. How would they do that? Probably the best way is to get yourself some canine suticals. Have you been using it? I have actually. No shit, like jokes aside, Remy was – circling the drain he was in bad shape and yeah. i said to narelle hey i want to try and get him back in condition mm. see how much longer i can get from him because like the mind is willing but the body is weak yeah and so she hooked me up with all the right things and he's a million times better in fact he's actually better than he has been in you know probably two years and you did a really cool social media content for narelle the other day which he really appreciated i make sweet reels bro you do yep. you are pretty good with your reels Again, all jokes aside, I'm not just saying this because Narelle's my wife. I make this very clear, but she what? Is, she's actually a genius with that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. When other people are sort of relaxing and kicking back, I know people are busy and they've got things to do, but Narelle reads white papers. She's doing everything. She's always looking how she can improve the standards in a dog's life. Like, she actually amazes me. She's mm. very, very industrious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Mojo Dog Co. Yep. Eins a Wiener. Eins a Wiener. Mm-hmm. Rowdy Hound. Rowdy Hound. Dan, Dan Croft. Croft. Yep. Suticals. Yep. Thank you all very, very much. You guys sponsor the show. If you want to support the show, support them. Yeah, They're the place to get the gear. Yeah. And if you get into Patreon and you tick that box, just know that we don't check that very often. So yeah, so you've got to tell you us. Gotta, you've got you you to shoot us a message. Yeah, it's fine for you to let us know. We really appreciate you. We started off our shows talking about some of our new attributes, things that we've got. Yeah. And we would never have got that without Patreon support. It's That's Patreon right. that pays our bills. All right. Enjoy the show. And our sponsors. Enjoy the sponsors. (laughs) Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm at my house and I'm talking to my co-host, Glenn Cook, over the internet. Hopefully it holds itself together. Ooh, woo. (laughs) i can't stop seeing that fucking clip everywhere i turn on to social media at the moment really that's an old one isn't it that one's been around for ages it's been around for ages but it's popping up again oh goodness congratulations sir we held our our very first all australian psa trial and it actually happened went off without a hitch there's so many people to congratulate on that it's almost impossible to know where to start i wrote a quite a lengthy description of it in the canine paradigm discussion group First of all, I'd like to say thank you to Jerry Bradshaw and Janet Edwards for allowing me to judge and Mm -hmm. affording me the deputy judge training program that we could actually do that. I know you endorse that as well. So there's many people that I I wanted to extend appreciation because without that support and without that networking, it would never have happened. The OG on that was Sean Edwards. Sean was the first person to actually mention that, bring it up and start the whole process. Without Sean coming over here, without us meeting him and being mentored by him and so forth, Sean would never have gone back and endorsed it and started the whole Mm -hmm. process. So, Sean, enormous thanks to you because you've really been a major, major catalyst in getting PSA up in Australia with you, Pat. So the two of you have been incredibly instrumental in making that happen. All of those people I just mentioned were the catalyst of creating that and getting that off the ground. I want to thank the club in general, Iron Fist PSA, which is our club. You, me, and Neville started that club together. We were the founders of the club. That's grown. It's largely your back and Jazz's back that does a lot of the working dogs in there. 
But I also want to extend a huge amount of thanks to Tenua. I'm not sure what Tenua's last name is, but we call her Tenua. Everyone knows her by Tenua anyway. But I just wanted to extend an enormous amount of thanks to Tenua, who really kicked ass in getting into the organization and a lot of the prep work and made things happen, which were really dragging its feet along a little bit. That's her job. She's analytical like that, and she's great with time pressures. So she really made things happen. She got it all organized. She started meeting and liaising with the administration with head office PSA, got all the trophies over, got everything happening on time. And we were well ahead of schedule, which was great. She also threw a lot of money into it herself and backed it. She just did so much. Where do I start with that? I mean, there's just an enormous amount of thanks. And she's not a person who thrives on online attention or thrives in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. In fact, it embarrasses her. So I didn't want to embarrass her. I just wanted her to know that we all send a lot of love and appreciation her way for actually making that happen. Then I wanted to absolutely thank everybody who showed under me. It's an enormous privilege to be asked to be a judge. It's also an enormous privilege to have people actually want to come and be judged by you when that's your first judging appointment. The feedback I got was really good, which was very encouraging. Everyone felt, well, everyone that I spoke to said they felt that my judging was fair. The critiques were as reasonable as they could be and in line with what they would expect to see from an overseas judge. One of the people who gave me that feedback, and I take their advice very literally, was Georgie Harrington. She said that one of the dogs that I didn't pass in the PDC, that she said it was almost identical to the critique that she got from or I don't think it was her, I'm not sure if it was her, but one of the competitors from the last trial when Jerry and Janet were out, she said it was almost identical to the performance that dog did and the critique and the scoring was almost identical. So to get that from Georgie, because Georgie's a very true-to-life person, if I did a shit job, she would have come up and told me as well, again, which I would have taken that welcomely on board because I like Georgie and I really trust her endorsements and her feedback. There's a few people in the world that I take criticism well from, and she's definitely one of those people, and it was really nice to be endorsed that way. So the competitors just did an amazing job, very brave to stand out in the field. You've done it. I've done it. There's several of us that have been out there several times. I remember the first PSA one that I did, and Randy wouldn't let go in the carjacking scenario, and it was heartbreaking that that happened because he passed his PDC, did really well. And in the PSA one, the first attempt I did, he wouldn't let go. But the second one, he was he came off like a rocket because we actually trained for it. And you and I identified that, you know, he treated it very real when the gunshot went off and it created a bit of drama there. So over to you, mate. What were your thoughts on the whole weekend? Yeah. Oh, man, I'm just really glad that we had the ability to do it. I think it's been a long time coming. You know, we've been banging our head against the wall for it's six years now trying to get PSA going in Australia and facing a lot of challenges, especially with COVID and being sort of, I think it's been nearly four years. I think it was three and a half years since we've trialed. There's a lot of moving parts in putting together a trial like that, especially like I think people maybe don't recognize that when they're playing a game like IGP or something like that, that's very well established. And there's people, you know, that people know what's going on and yeah, the judges are in place, the helpers are in place, and and people have been through it all before. But for us doing it for the first time as a PSA trial without someone from the headquarters here to hold our hands through it and step us through it and having to sort of, you know, step up and do all that ourselves, I'm just really glad that it happened. We had a lot of people show. Uh, we had like 60 people come and, and spectate, which, as I said to people at the time, I was like, you know, because there are a lot of people who listen to us and are interested in the show and that kind of thing that actually came out to the trial. 
I think one of the beauties of PSA is that it does lend itself to becoming a spectator sport. Like it is very interesting to watch. Mm. And one of the things we did was we spoke to the crowd, like spoke to the people quite a lot and said, you know, this is what's happening. And this is why this is like the handler meeting. Not only did you and I run a handler meeting for the handlers, but then I kind of run one separately for the spectators so that they had an understanding of what was going on and explained what we were testing and why we were testing it and how every level preps you for the next one and the whole point of it and what the point of a PDC is versus the level one and all that kind of stuff. So I think that it was pretty well received. Uh, I was really happy to have you know so many people show. It was probably our biggest trial that we've had here. Mm. Uh, and in the end, I think we ended up having seven people get PDCs and Dom got a PSA one and a really spectacular showing in his one. You know, he's got a, like, I was really proud of Dom for the whole way that went. He's got a very challenging dog. It's a dog not, really best suited to PSA. It's a IPO bloodline. It's not an easy dog to manage and hasn't been an easy dog to train. And he put on a spectacular showing. So it was really fantastic. And mate, personally, I'm just really excited about where it's all going to go. I think now the floodgates are open to that. There's a lot of dinosaurs in the dog space here in Australia that uh, have been trying to stop anything but what they do being successful. And I think their reign is over. Their time is done. And I think a lot more people are looking to say like, hey, I just want to have fun with my dog and I want to do whatever I want to do. So I appreciate the Sydney Ring Sport guys coming and quite a few of those PDCs that was it two or three of the three of them were on to dogs that have Mondio titles as well. So that's really cool that there's a big grouping together of people that realize that we just want to play fun games with our dogs. And I'm really excited now about the future of PSA in Australia. I realized a little while ago, a few months ago that you know, in trying to get PSA going for such a long time, I have been doing it not in the best way. And I've been doing that by trying to convince people to come over to PSA with their dogs that they you know, might've had other options to do things with. That's a constant battle because we're fighting against, uh, not fighting against, but we're up against other sports that have bigger infrastructure. IGP specifically is what I mean, right? Like they're more established, there's more clubs, there's more trials, there's easier access. But what we're trying to change is that easier access, right? Like that's what we're trying to say is that you can play with any dog. It doesn't need to be a specific bloodline. doesn't need to be a specific pedigree. You can turn up with any dog. We don't care about the pedigree. We want you to come in and have fun with your dog. And I think that what I've been doing is incorrect in trying to get the people to come in. What I really need to do is spend more time setting up the infrastructure to allow for that. I think that looks like decoys. So next year, I haven't quite figured out exactly what it's going to look like. What I think it's probably going to be is like a monthly training session, maybe like one Sunday a month or something like that, where I want to start bringing in people from all over the country and training them as decoys. That's not my specialty. Like that's a long way from being what I want to invest my time and effort. That's why I haven't done that because I don't think that I am a decoy that should be teaching other people. Like I have a reasonable skill set. I kind of know what I'm doing. I, I can do okay, but it's not where I have put my effort as a trainer in specializing in my skill set. I can do it and I do it because I'm the only one around, but I've realized that I certainly, I probably am at a level where I can and should start passing on that information to other people so that they can go out. And that's how, that's how we'll get more clubs going is by having more established people who know how to develop the dogs or at least, you know, not set them back. So that's the plan over the next sort of 12 months. And then stand by, I've got some really cool ideas. I want to get more certified decoys in Australia. I want more development decoys and I want more certified decoys. And I have a plan for what that's going to look like. And I'm very, very confident that that will cause like a huge growth of the game. More than anything, mate, I think just because 
it's fun. And I think that was evident from the people on the field to the spectators at the trial is that PSA really has the capacity to be a spectator sport as well. And and when people come to watch and support it, then it's it becomes easier to happen. So yeah, that's where we're at. I just wanted to add to that, that a special mention really needs to go to Carnelian for stepping in as the steward over the two days. She inherited that job because we had a short supply of decoys, which you were pretty much wrapping up with then. I think she inherited it about a week and a half before the trial actually started and did nothing but put her life on hold to totally prep to get herself ready for it and did a killer job of it as well. Totally. Read the rule book probably about 50 times, probably highlighted every section in it, disseminated it, rewrote it, made sure that she scripted it almost word perfect like it was a play, went through it, walked through it, spent time going through it with you, spent time with it going through it with me. There were so many preparations that she put in place. It was just fantastic how much effort she did. And it really paid off on the day. It made my job incredibly easy that all I had to do was literally listen to her and every competitor was guided onto the field with her stewarding. And then I was able to sit back and concentrate on doing the judging and watching everything that people were doing, which was fantastic. I've got to say from the perspective of what I was doing I was able to follow people around on the trial circuit, watch what they were doing, watch their obedience, watch their handling, watch everything and every angle and aspect that they were doing so I could fairly judge them as well. And it was also great to watch the decoying where I could watch yourself, Cole, Jazz, and I could actually watch how the bites were taking place, the depth, the drive, the courage of the dogs. It was just great, mate. I really enjoyed the whole weekend. I got a lot out of it. I really enjoyed it. It's terrific and I'd love to see more and more of it kicking up. I hope more clubs start to take place. You're right though, we do need more decoys. We've just got an absolute shortage of decoys and it's a very decoy hungry sport. Whereas yeah, for the, sure. the others like IGP and even Mondio to a degree, they're not as decoy hungry as what PSA mm. is. So yes, yeah. we, we definitely need super soldier decoy Sean Edwards to come back over endorsing us with his homeland love and start cranking out and creating more decoys for us. Well, you know, on that topic, so I'm in talks with a few different people. So like the plan, like I say, is I want to start training people. That's going to be like a no charge thing. Like I want to, you know, I'm really putting a lot of work into getting this going. So we're going to figure out a, a schedule. I'm thinking that looks like one Sunday every month, plus, you know, normal training and whatever that we do, but like some sort of concentration that people can, can come to. Then bringing out Sean, hopefully later in 2023, if he can't find the time, that'll be early sort of 2024 and getting him to polish the turd really that I create. And then we'll look to try and certify some more people. But I think even beyond certified decoys, like I think a lot of people think of that as what's necessary. And for a trial, for sure, we need certified decoys, but mm. to get people ready for trial, you just need people that can help develop a dog and helping the training of a dog, not necessarily need to be an amazing decoy themselves. They need to just be able to assist along the way. And so that's my goal. You know, I've got a people ready and willing to help me do that next year. So I'm, I'm excited about it. We have a topic as well on top of this. We do. So there's been a question, uh, a big one with 117 comments in our discussion group that mm. I thought we could explore a little bit. Um, comes from a lady called Diane and she says, question Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. When it comes to the PP training, and I, I'm presuming she means purely positive, How do you respond to those who reference marine animal training as proof that PP is 100% foolproof? It may seem like a logical comparison, but marine animals are not dogs. Joel Beckman and his wife train marine animals at SeaWorld, and yet they don't use PP theory. 
The majority of trainers I met support a balanced theory. So that's promising. It's the inexperienced owners, some rescue organizations, and narrow-minded trainers, which I'm concerned about. I'm not a professional trainer, but I do have experience with training my personal dogs in addition to our foster dogs. Sorry that my post has been so long. The focus is when people use marine animal training methods as justification for PP theory, how do you respond? Thanks. So there's 117 comments that went along with that. And like, I think one of the things... The conversations can be a little bit derailed and that, that's natural, you know, like people will organically go in different directions. That happens. Mm. But I thought it would be best for us to try and actually address her question and not talk about, if you're in the group, you can read the comments and you can see that there were many sort of sidebar conversations. Mostly I'm really proud of people in there. Like it was a very fruitful discussions. I think that most people sort of keep themselves together. There's a few people in there that expose themselves continually as the hateful mean people that they are and we leave those people <laughs> in the group so that we can continue to see you we we see you we know who you are and we see the things that you stand for but i thought that we would try our best to answer and the, the real question is when it comes to pp training how do you respond to those who reference marine animal training as proof that purely positive is 100 percent foolproof do you hear people say that much you always hear variations of topics and discussions in different groups that you move around in or social media that you're reading. You'll see and you'll hear and you'll bear witness to some strange conversations that take place. I absolutely don't agree at all that marine animal training is purely positive. I just don't believe in it at all. I think that they like to talk about it as being purely positive, but I don't believe that's the case. And I'm not a marine animal trainer and I'm not poo-pooing marine animal trainers because we're all kindred spirits in a way and good trainers are worth their salt in whatever field or whatever arena they're in. Also, I don't like sitting on the fence with some of these conversations. A good saying that somebody told me a while ago is that if you sit on the fence long enough, all you'll get is an asshole full of splinters. So, you know, I think sometimes in these conversations, we tend to play a bit of a safe game in responses to some of these things. And Sometimes it's political and sometimes it's kindness. And I agree with you, there are some hateful people in those groups and they truly are mean-spirited people, funnily enough, who, again, are the advocates of positive-only training or plus-R training or whatever. It just It's not that group. We have identified that. I just want to say that. I know we've we've got to have that little safe button press every time that conversation comes up. Back to the topic at hand. One thing that somebody told me a while ago, which I thought was interesting Marine animals are very much unlike dogs. I mean, number one, their their brain capacity is much larger. Number two, they're trapped in ponds. So, mm. the, you know, they don't go running off down fields herding deer into oncoming traffic like Fenton does. They're trapped in a pond. And I know that they can choose not to play. I know that they can vow, and they do. You know, like I've been to the Gold Coast Sea World, and I've seen it when the dolphins don't want to play games with the trainers and they're, you know, the seals don't want to do some of the things. And they just have a way of keeping the show going and making it funny and, you know, everyone has a mm -hmm. laugh and it's kind of like, well, the show's got to go on one way or another. If the animal doesn't want to play, we're dealing with largely wild but somewhat domesticated marine animals that sometimes just go, well, well, fuck you. Which reminded me of a time I went to 
Tronga Zoo one time and they were doing the birds of prey flight and one of the birds just fucked off and flew away, <laughs> which yeah. I found was yeah. incredibly funny. I think it came back eventually when it was feeding time, but the zookeepers and trainers said, you know, look, when we're dealing with animals like this, sometimes they do get distracted and they do have a mind of their own. And unfortunately, this is one of those days. They didn't even try and cover it up. They spoke openly about it and yeah. the crowd accepted that. And I thought that they probably accepted that better because there was no spin doctoring around that sort of situation. The other comment that I remember hearing years ago was if you tried to positively punish something like an orca, they would literally slam you up against the side of the tank and and consume you. You're in their realm and you have to be very respectful of a creature that incredibly power to weight ratio is outweighing you and you're in their domain. So you have Mm. to be very, very considerate and very thoughtful about what you're going to do in those sort of situations because as we've seen in documentation and newsreels and so forth, there have been cases where people have been torn in half by orcas. There have been Mm. several cases, in fact, where it's been reported. One most recently where another trainer was killed and then paraded around in the underwater tanks in front of spectators which would have been an absolutely terrifying experience. So, look, things can go wrong in all sort of situations. I feel that most trainers understand that they need to work with the matrix, and I don't believe that they would positively punish the animals, but I definitely believe that they would use pressure. I believe that they would use negative reinforcement to train them. I'd almost bet my hat on it. However, I'm not a, a marine mammal trainer, as I've identified and stated several times. However... The people that I have spoken to online over the years, the people that I've listened to and gone to seminars who have been involved in that in one shape or another, they never really truly reveal everything. They don't reveal all their cards. They have, once again, that safe game, which they like to talk about. It is the politically correct version of this is how we do it. And I feel within my heart and soul that they're withholding the entire truth of how they're actually training those animals. I feel that they have a version that sits well with the general public and that's what they like to speak about. However, that's my thoughts and feelings on the matter. Over to you, sir. Yeah. So like, I think as dog trainers, there's limited utility in drawing too much from Mm. the way that any other animals are trained because they're not dogs, right? So it's not to say that you should, like we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. But what I am saying is that You have to look at these sorts of things through the lens of what's actually useful and what actually transfers. One of the things that we see quite a lot is like a lot of information on free shaping and animal management, that kind of stuff comes from like Ken Ramirez and his work with, you know, shaping zoo animals and managing the behavior of those animals. And and I think that while that can be really, really interesting and does have a level of crossover to dog training, I don't think that it is as applicable and carries as much weight as a lot of people like to give it. See, because like, I think one of the things that we know of the exotic animals, especially marine mammals, but say we talk about pretty much any animal that lives in a zoo is that they are an animal that lives in an enclosure. While it is sort of super interesting the way that you can train, let's use a dolphin, for example, to perform all kinds of tricks and people develop relationships with them and all kinds of things. At the end of the day, it lives in its environment and you live in your environment. And we're not really asking them to coexist together too much. The other thing that I think is also worth keeping in mind is that mostly what those marine mammals are trained to do are what we would call in, you know, in the dog training 
world, like the monkey drills, right? Like they're the the sit down stand equivalent. And they're teaching the dolphins to do party tricks that are cool demos within a pool. And and like not to sort of take away how difficult that is to be and the extreme skill level in the marking behaviors and delivering reinforcement and all of and the variable schedules and all of those things that are impressive for sure. I think that that stuff is quite applicable to training that kind of things in dogs. And I think, you know, when you look at say marine mammal training, you're looking at a dolphin or a seal or whatever that's in a pool and you're capturing behaviors and you are, you know, marking them and you're getting via reinforcement, making it more likely to happen, capturing some sort of cue in front of it so that the, you can make the animal do it on command and they do it knowing that reinforcement's coming. So like that is super applicable to dog training. And I think that if you can't with a dog that lives in a kennel, if you're in say protected custody, right, which is the way that a lot of exotic animals are trained, protected custody where they can't get to you and you can't get to them. Now, this isn't necessarily true of the marine mammals, although in some places it is, you know, more and more of those marine mammal training parks now, they don't get in the water, especially after the incidents you've talked about with the orcas that have killed people. They're not allowed in the water with particular of them. If you have a dog in a kennel and you can't free shape a couple of behaviors, you know, a sit down, stand, that kind of stuff by using something like a manner's mind or something like that, where you're hands off with the dog. I don't care how aggressive and how problematic and what a, you know, what a disaster that dog could be to live with. If the dog's in a kennel and it's healthy and capable of learning, you can't teach those things, then you've got an issue as a, as a trainer, right? So mm. there is much for us to draw similarities there. But what I don't think is very relevant to us from marine mammal training for us as dog trainers is when we start talking about like behavior modification and we start talking about the way that we would coexist and live with these animals because they don't really do that with those animals. So imagine you had a, a, a dolphin who for whatever reason became hyper aggressive of other dolphins. Well, in those environments, they would just separate them. They would just not have them together. And you can then say for sure, even if they do like, let's, because I, I believe that there are marine mammal parks that do use, you know, just positive reinforcement in their training. You could make certainly an argument that they, you know, the confines of captivity, the boredom of being in a pool, all those sorts of things could put, go into the category of negative reinforcement. And I would happily make those arguments, but we can put that aside for now. And let's just talk about the actual training of the behaviors. I think that even if we want to say that's purely positive and they just free shape it, no problem. But what they're not doing is asking for behavior modification. And what they're not doing is ever putting those animals in a position where they have choices with really strongly conflicting motivators. Because the animal's in a pool, there's not much else going on there. They might have some toys in there that they're meant to interact with as part of the show, like a ball or whatever, you know, a rope that they like to hit, all that kind of stuff. But what you're not asking them to do is to do those tricks while they've got another of the dolphins that they hate the guts of and would kill given the first chance in the pool with them. And I think that's where that kind of thing falls apart for us as dog trainers. When we look at marine mammal training, we say, hey, like they can train all these cool tricks. Why can't you do that with your dog? And it's like, yeah, I can do that with my dog. If my dog lived in a kennel, I never actually interacted with him and I only wanted to click and throw the food in there. For sure, I could train a bunch of really cool things. And I think that anyone who can't has no business calling themselves a trainer. But what I don't expect them to do is to, you know, 
rehabilitate problem behaviors from those those animals. What I don't expect them to do is to live with an animal and coexist with it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, like some people expect their dogs to be able to do. What I don't expect them to do is go against some of the sort of uh, ethology that is driven into those animals of like two intact males that are living together and how they're going to have that power play and how, you know, one's going to want to dominate the other, or they're going to have to establish some sort of hierarchy, some sort of dominant structure. I don't expect them to manage those things with their captive animals that live in pools. I think there were, there were interesting comments in the thread as well about people who work with the open water dolphins that are trained. And I think that's really cool. And 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 I think that it does speak to the ability to deal with competing motivators and the availability of like the dolphin thinking that, you know, it's interesting. I can perform a few tricks. I can do a few things and take a free meal. And that's probably easier for me than going out and having to hunt for the fish myself and, and eating in that way. As well as I think that it certainly appears as though there is a level of, you know, relationship that those animals do seem to enjoy to some extent, right? Because you see that dolphins come and investigate people. Certainly I know all too well how well everybody I'm sure <laughs> that knows the story is come and investigate people and that sort of stuff. So like from my point of view, I think that while it is interesting, while I think that marine mammal training, there is much that we can learn and there's much that we can take from that and we can apply to our dog training. I think that the slices of that are very narrow. There's parts of that that we can look at and go, yeah, for sure, we, sh- we can and should look into that and we can apply that. And if they can do cool things, like actually in our Patreon, mate, there's a whole video on reinforcement strategies that I put in there. And part of it includes footage that I took at Taronga Zoo at one of the SEAL shows, where I was very, very impressed with one of the SEAL trainers who, to sort of explain to everybody, there was a part where one of the, I think it's a sea lion, it's one of the huge things, like a big California sea lion, goes up onto the podium and the whole crowd's meant to yell, tell him to jump. And then he gives a refusal and doesn't jump. And me and Rip used to go, when Rip was a young baby, we used to go, we were members at the zoo and it's a fun day, right? So we used to go almost every week and we'd go to the seal show at least once a week. I'd see it. I was so into it and I was so into the way that they train those seals and watched the show so closely that had they said one day that the trainer was sick and they couldn't do it, I could have stepped in. Like I knew all the cues. I knew all the markers. I knew everything because I'd watched it that closely. One day, the lady tells the seal to go up onto the big platform and does the, uh, everybody's got to yell jump and the seal shakes his head and doesn't want to do it. She gives him the sign to shake his head and pretend like he's refusing. And then it's the three, two, one, and she gives the correct signal to go and he didn't go. And the way that she handled it, I thought was quite remarkable. It was excellent. Actually, she didn't skip a beat. And it was, he just gave a refusal for the behavior. And so what she did was she asked him to blow his tongue. Like he has a, you know, like he can go the sort of sound with his tongue. So she got him to do that. Then she got him to wave a flipper and she didn't reinforce either of those. And then she asked for him to jump into the water and he did. So it was very interesting. I think that she kind of like broke the rules, not broke the rules, but stepped outside of what they normally do in their consistent reinforcement schedule, right? So she went immediately to a variable reinforcement schedule. And what she'd asked him to do, the big jump off of the platform into the pool, was just more than he was willing to give. And so she built some like behavioral momentum by asking for a small behavior that he was willing to give and didn't reinforce it, asked for another one that he was willing to give and didn't reinforce it. And through doing that probably built like a bit of a dopamine surge where he was then willing to do the bigger maneuver 
not to earn the fish, but to find out if he would earn the fish, because that was probably like, that's the behavioral momentum that she got going. It was like three little dopamine spikes that she managed to cause and cause a bigger version of the behavior. I was really impressed by it. I hung around after the show and asked to speak to her because, you know, they come out and do the questions and I asked her about it and she, she confirmed like that was exactly what she did. She did it with, you know, clear intention and also told me that because of the time of year, he's not really eating. And so the show gets harder and harder for her to do because his calorie, like he cuts his calorie uh, consumption down to like half. And so when they have to do two shows a day, that's you know more than enough food for him. And he gets harder and harder to motivate as they do that. And so they would take him out eventually because he gets to the point where he's just not interested in performing for the food anymore because he just doesn't, he's just not hungry enough. So I think that kind of speaks to the relevance of marine mammal training for us as dog trainers. I think there's some very interesting things in it that building behavioral momentum, I actually ended up using that exact same thing in uh, my PSA trial in my, in my second level two, when there was a recall, it was like an impossible recall. So I was in a car and I had to recall the dog and he couldn't get to me. So he stood on the bonnet. And when I got out, so, you know, good points because it could, he did it the best that he could be good. He demonstrated that he knew what I wanted, but tried to fulfill it to the maximum of his capability. Uh, and then when I got out of the car, he was very confused and I asked him to, to come back into heel and he didn't do it. And so then I did the exact same thing. I asked for a couple of like smaller behaviors because it, you know, going to heel required getting off the bonnet of the car and sort of resetting himself. So I asked for a couple of smaller behaviors, got him to bark, got him to come into middle, flipped him around into heel. And then we carried on and I built that behavioral momentum exactly the same way that I saw her do with the seal. And I was even thinking about that at the time. So I think in that regard, what we learn from marine mammal trainers is highly relevant to us. But I think then... We also then, we can't just take from that and say, look, they're amazing. They, all their techniques are correct because as she said to me that, you know, whatever he was, seal or sea lion or whatever, he lacks motivation and they just pull him out of the show, right? Like eventually it gets to the point where he doesn't want the food enough to perform the stunts that they ask him to do in front of a crowd. And so he takes a few months off or they maybe get him to do one little thing in it and he earns all of his calories through that and they, they control his motivation. Now that is where it becomes less and less relevant to us as dog trainers because they are only putting on a show. They're not looking to modify a dog's behavior. They're also not looking to keep a dog in its home when it's you know behaving in a way that's likely to get it euthanized if it doesn't change its behavior. So I think that there is a much that we can learn from marine mammal training. There's a lot of interesting things that come of it, but it is not 100% applicable to dogs. And, and I think to say that it is, really demonstrates to me that you don't know very much about dog training. That really is the key. When people say to me like, oh, it's hundred percent applicable. And the fact that they can do that with this means that you should be able to do that with your dog. Really. When people say that, I just kind of go like, you don't really understand dogs at all or more likely. And this is sort of where some of the comments in our discussion group kind of left me wondering how many clients people actually have when people talk about the length of time that it takes to train things as well as, you know, like you just have to wait and it's unfair to coerce an animal. And that, those kind of answers lead me to think that people don't actually do much dog training, right? Or they don't have any, they don't really have clients that expect to see results because you can't say, go into someone's home and say, I've got this wildly aggressive dog. Everybody's too afraid to come into my home. He's dominant as shit and guards the house like crazy. 
And when you're trying to offer him food and, and he doesn't want to take it, you say, well, you know, he, we have to just, this is the, we throw these treats. We hope for the best. Like people just don't accept that, right? They want to, they want answers and you have to work within, as you said earlier, the full matrix of motivation to actually say, okay, let's see like what motivates this dog. How can we manipulate his behavior? Why is he doing the things that he is doing? Can we make him want to do something else, right? If it's a problem behavior, okay, we can't make him want to do something else more. How do we devalue the behavior that he is doing? And we're going to do that via, you know, forms of pressure and that kind of stuff. So that's my big rant about that. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that comes from marine mammal training. I don't know that it actually is done purely positive. I think that would vary depending on the the locations that it's done and the people that do it. I think that there would be a big spectrum of people and the training different marine mammals in different ways. I think there would be a huge spectrum of that, just like there is in dogs. And I'll bet that there's people who are overly compulsive and treat those animals like shit. And I bet that there's people who are wonderful and don't have no reliable behaviors, but the animals have a wonderful existence, right? I'll bet that there's everything in between that as well. But I think that the, their relevance to us in the dog training community is limited. I think that there's interesting stuff we can take from it, but we shouldn't be basing too much of what we do on they do. I think that was a very well-worded rant. I enjoyed sitting back and <laughs> listening to how prepared you were for it and how much thought you've actually engaged in the whole concept around it. Interesting, and I do agree with you. I think that there are some very similar parallels in training marine animals and dogs, but parallels don't mean identical matches. I think I mentioned a while ago when I was very, very mm. interested as a younger trainer in wolves, and I spent a long time reading all the material and researching wolves and buying all the books. I had a, I think in the end I gave away most of the books I had because they weren't really relevant because somebody who was a trainer who was involved in wolves and gave me some great advice back then said, mate, I know they're fascinating and I know that a lot of young trainers want to get enriched into the livelihood of wolves and it's fascinating some of the things that we've learned about them through science However, they're not dogs and they're different and the domestication of dogs and wolves is completely different and you won't find many people who have spent time successfully training wolves like you would dogs. He mm. said, if I can give you some sound advice, spend more of your time focusing on the domesticated dog. And he said, I think you yeah. will find better fulfillment and you will succeed a lot more than wasting time researching wolves unless you're going to be involved in wolves in some way, shape or form. I remember when I got to interview Dr. Robert Sapolsky and he was speaking about how he was frustrated that he spent so much time researching one region of the brain and really dedicated a large portion of his life to doing so where he really felt that he was more suited and would have got a lot more out of his career if he'd only spent that time on the prefrontal cortex of the brain. He said, mm. that's really where it was at. I didn't know that at the time. I think he said he was spending most of his years on the hippocampus. So we can be misled with a lot of ways that we're thinking about things. We think that they have importance. We think that they have very strong, when I talk about parallels, we think they can have very strong matches, but find that there's some relevance, but not all the relevance that we need to endorse ourselves or create ourselves or map ourselves as better trainers. And when you're trying to create that scaffolding around who you need to become, in order to develop yourself as a trainer. Yes, it's interesting to know some of these concepts. And yes, we do use a lot of the same behavioral theories, but that's where the limitations start to sound off. 
like I said before, some of these marine mammals are trapped in huge ponds. And an example of that was when Narelle and I went over to Tahiti on our way to Bora Bora, we spent time on the main island over there. And at one of the results, they had dolphins where people could go and do a little training thing with. To entertain myself, I went over and before the show started, I went and met with the trainers over there and introduced myself and I kind of told them who I was and what I did back home as a full-time job. And they were very fascinated to talk about behavioral learning theory with me because we could exchange some ideas and some experiences on what we've learned over that period. It was great for me to actually spend some time behind the scenes looking into their world and what they were doing. One of the things that I was noticing was the dolphins that were swimming around in the area they could literally have jumped over the boundary and disappeared into the ocean if they wanted to. They actually chose to stay, and I believe they were conditioned to stay there. It was opportunistic for them to stay there as well, and I believe that they were rescued from other marine animal parks and brought over there, and essentially they chose to stay where they were. The interesting thing was, and when we're talking about parallels, I recall listening to you several times talking about your experience in military training when you were locked up inside a container, stripped down naked, played Snappy the Crocodile, and you were really enthusiastic for that to end by the interrogation process. Like that was what you were looking forward to. Now, when I watch marine animals, and some may say that this is an unfair comparison, but I'm going to do it nonetheless – When I was watching them swimming around, they looked really frustrated. They were waiting for the show to start. They were literally zooming around the pool in a fixed pattern, like they were doing infinity circles in the pool, swimming in that giant figure of eight sort of infinity pattern. And one of the dolphins was for hours and hours on end. He was almost doing the same pattern, swimming right way up, swimming upside down, swimming right way up, swimming upside down, waiting and pacing and pacing and pacing for the show to start. So- Mm you could see automatically that that dolphin was under pressure. He was probably limited in calories during that time. They never said that to me. I did ask the question. They kind of avoided the response. They were very selective about what information they were going to give there. But they did reveal that it was somewhat scenary in what they were doing because they needed the animals to perform because it brings the money in and the money actually goes back to supporting them and being... Yeah, all that. Yeah, all that. Creating welfare for the dolphins, et cetera, et cetera. Largely, we spoke about shaping through successive approximations, how they teach dolphins to start coming to the surface of the water, then starting to slowly breach the water, and then starting to learn how to jump out until they finally understand and accept what you want me to do is jump high as high as I can into the air. And through shaping, we do things like this with dogs, and that's where those parallels begin and end. But again, they're marine animals. They're different in a lot of things they do. The fun way that I always love to describe it is the way that the ties describe things is same, same, but different. Yes, Mm. similarities, but differences and vast differences sometimes as well. For me and Narelle, it was great to see. I probably spent a whole day there like a petulant child asking as many questions as I could, following them around. And I think at the end of it, they were probably thinking, thank God that fucking annoying Australian guy is is pissed (laughs) off. What they did was, which I felt was really kind of them, was they did placate me and they did bring me in and let me ask questions. And, you know, like we sat on the poolside talking about training concepts and models of training and 
I did find that they pre-mac a lot of things with the dolphins as well. So, you know, when we talk about here is something that you need to do in something in order to get something that you want, um, which is mm. fundamentally how the pre-mac model works. I was interested in how they were doing that at times with the dolphins. They were mainly concentrating on two or three dolphins in those tanks. And it was largely from what they were telling me was a rescue program where they were bringing over unloved dolphins from other facilities and bringing them into their program. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Um, I took them on face value on that. Uh, As I said, I got plenty of time to sound off and ask lots of questions. I was very interested in what we were doing. Um, Narelle and I did the program. We paid them for it and jumped in the pool with the dolphins and got to be a part of the show. It was almost a private show because it was me and Narelle and one other couple where usually the, you know, there's several people in there, but I think we spent like a, a solid hour in the water, you know, swimming around with dolphins and hanging out with them. And it was a great experience. I feel that if I got the chance to do it again, I don't know if I would, because a lot of people gave me a lot of curry about it and said, you're supporting animal cruelty and trapping and caging. Exploitation. Yeah, exploitation. That's right. Yeah, exploitation of wild animals and so forth. However, some of these animals are rescued. They're never going to know another life and they're not safe to go back out in the sea again. Um, they'll probably be hunted down and killed. They probably won't know how to look after themselves. Again, I don't know that 100% sure. I've seen examples of that with birds that have been let out of aviaries and they've tried to join flocks of other birds and then been picked on and killed in those sort of situations. Uh, A friend had that happen to a cocky. He had an extremist let their cocky out of their cage one day. Their cocky flew up with a bunch of wild cockies and he thought, oh, well, he's not going to come back. He seems to be happy with them. The next day he found him dead on the ground. Um, so he was literally, that's probably a lack of social skills, right? Like they probably killed him because he didn't know how to fit in. He was a weirdo to them. Well, nobody saw it, but he was pecked and beaten when he took him to the vet to have the vet look over him. The vets confirmed that he was killed by the other cockies. He didn't know whether he'd been shot or whether something happened to him. So he was devastated, but he said to me, look, unfortunately it was a lesson. I probably shouldn't have advertised. I had the birds there. I should have locked the aviary. Lots of things went through his head. He blamed himself extensively over it. The unfortunate thing was the very people who were advocating freedom and social space for this cocky ultimately got it killed, which was just mm. ironic that these pinheads exist in the world. Mm. And it was devastating for him. I mean, the bird was well fed. He was well cared for. He was a 50-year-old plus bird or something like that. So he'd been in the family for quite some time. A lot of these parrots are inherited birds. So, yeah, that was quite unfortunate. And I feel that many of the people who are still involved in some of these shows who get blamed for exploitation, I know we're going to, at some stage, we keep missing having Casey Kanan on the show to talk to him about his experiences in zoos and circuses and so forth, working with and training and rehabilitating and helping people with lions, tigers and bears and all the sort of Exotics. Yeah, all those sort of exotics. Yeah, all those sort of things that he's worked with over time. It's going to be an interesting conversation. And he's been here a bunch of times. He actually competed in our backyard with PSA. Yeah. It was just that it didn't measure up time-wise because we all had incredible workloads on during that time to try and make everything happen. But I think also one of the reasons we're we're so delayed in getting Casey on is you and I both know that's not a short conversation. (laughs) So I think we probably need like a good six hours to really get into all the stuff that we really want to talk about in that regard. Well, I think we could probably record three shows and have a part one, two, and three with Casey. Yeah. 
He loves a chat. He's good at talking. He's good at talking, yeah. He's a professional talker. That's what he did. You know, like he went on tour with animals for most of his life through his youth into modern day. Like he still goes out and helps people in Australia and uh, wherever anybody wants him to help with those exotics. But one of the things that I did notice is that if you look through his social media, he's got an extensive array of working with all these type of exotics. I mean, he's even got yeah. scars on his body, which he was showing me that through working with them. And interestingly, and I'm going to let him tell those stories, but interestingly, he was telling me why there were times where he got lashed out at and mm. what happened to prevent it from getting worse. He said he's never really been bitten terribly, but he has been raked and he has been bitten and there are scars up and down his body from his head to his toe where he's been touched up. And he still loves getting back in the ring with them and start and working with them and being able to handle them and yeah. manage them. Like we do largely with dog training. I mean, I've got marks up and down my body from my torso, my legs, my arms, my hands. I've been bitten and tagged by dogs before. It's occupational. You can't help these sort of things from happening. I'm extending that into what you were talking about before when you're getting into these ponds at some of these marine parks with some of these large, powerful animals when this level of frustration is being created through training and there has possibly been deprivation with food when you're using that whole Skinner box mentality to try and get them into performing shows, they're an incredibly large predator animal. That level of frustration can lead to all sorts of unexplained types of behaviours surfacing and even yeah. times where the animal will rage and not be in full control of what it's actually doing. You know, yeah. referencing again Dr. Robert Sapolsky when he talks about amygdala hijacking, we've seen evidence of that in human beings. We've seen evidence of that in dogs. We've seen evidence of that in a large amount of domestic animals. And then when it happens with some of these exotics, you know, the lions, the tigers, or even these marine mammals, orcas and sea lions and so forth, we think, oh, wow, that's just unheralded for that animal to behave in that way. However, mm. they are prone to having the same sort of rage relapses that we have through their brain being hijacked by their amygdala, or if they just feel that there is an unprecedented amount of fuckery going on in their life and they're just sick to death of it, they feel like there's action that needs to be taken. Mm. One thing, just to bring us back to sort of the topic originally, mm. reading the comments there, there's some interesting things I do want to address. So I've said my piece about what I would say to people in answer to the question is how do you deal with that? And I'd say, look, there's very relevant parts, but there's also irrelevant parts. But I think reading the comments here, there's quite a few people, especially like people who are from the sort of more force-free community, encouraging people to look into the US Navy's marine mammal training program and what they do with those. What I would say to the people sort of recommending others look into that is, I think you should probably have a look into that because that goes, like I've been briefed into that. That goes a little bit differently to how you might think. So, you know, the US Navy, I'll be careful what I say. They do have marine mammal program. They have dolphins and they have seals that are trained to do things. But for the most part, those dolphins are trained to fucking kill people in the water right? Like that's what they do. If they like a lot of us battle fleets have a dolphin pod that they, they carry with them. When they go stationary, those dolphins go and make sure there's no divers in the water. And it's a very, very dangerous thing because uh, like I, you know, 
friends of mine that have been the divers on those ships that will service boats underwater and things like that, like they will tell you how terrifying it is because those dolphins will indiscriminately kill whoever they find. And that's what they've been trained to do. They've got a non-lethal capability as well, where the dolphin will slam a fucking winch onto you. So they, they have like a coupling on their face that they slam like a magnetic closing winch to a person that they find, then they'll send other divers down. And if you get funny, it, that winch is a, it's a high speed winch. So they'll just rip you out of the water and give you the bends. Right. So like for the most part, that's what that capability actually is. It, we, it would be great if we could get someone on that could actually talk about, talk to that. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know that that's actually like, I don't know that they're doing what you think they're doing. And also I can tell you as well, some of them don't come back. There are dolphins out there who have not come back that are specifically <laughs> trained to kill people underwater. Right. So like, that's the reality of that situation. I think also if you want to start talking about like the U S Navy and their, you know, training and how we should look at them as the pillars of training excellence, if that's what you want to say, that's fine. I'm on board with that, but they also have dog handlers. So let's talk about what their dog handlers do, because if we're going to look at their marine mammal trainers and say that they are the pillars of excellence, I'm happy to say that for sure. Right. Let's say it. And if we need to train marine mammals, then let's talk to those guys. They're, they're trained by the best. I know that Bob Bailey's been involved in that training. They do other things other than kill people underwater. They do have a mind search capability and stuff like that. But for sure, that's super interesting and relevant to marine mammal training. But the US Navy also has dogs and dog handlers. And if we're going to say that they're the pinnacle of dog handling and training, well, I can tell you, and they probably are. Let's talk about SEAL Team 6, for example, right? Dev Group, who have taken dogs on the raid to, to kill, capture Osama bin Laden and al-Baghdadi. Both that, that was very well publicized, both very in the media things that both those raids had dogs on the raid with them. I'm telling you, those dogs are wearing e-collars. <laughs> like that is a for sure 100% fact that those dogs were wearing an e-collar. So like, if we're going to look at relevance of training, let's look at what is truly relevant to us. And if we're going to say that people are the pillars of excellence in a certain area of training, I think we should investigate what areas of that training is actually relevant to dogs and they have dog training. And so mm -hmm. let's look at the way they train and they train their dogs using electric collars. I know for a fact that SEAL Team 6's dogs are going to be wearing electric collars. You and I both know, and the larger community knows and understands that there is a vast difference between what is written and what is on people's social media accounts as to what is truly fact, what is going on in front of your very eyes. I have witnessed that firsthand in a multitude of cases, especially in the dog training community, when people have addressed a certain romantic way of spinning up what they want the public to know about what they're doing. And when I've seen it firsthand with my very own eyes, it's largely different. When we were using the phrasing before parallels, this is going off in complete tangents. And I'm not suggesting that the US Navy or any of these other people have done that. I don't have firsthand witnesses. I've never been there. I've never seen their training. I've never shadowed them. I've never walked their path. But I have walked the path with other people who have done very similar things. And they're not even writing it up. They've got agencies and spin doctors writing it up for them. So when it gets onto social media or when it gets into media, you know, mainstream media and so forth, you know, we're talking about potential versus reality. Don't believe everything that you read on script. Sometimes you need to see it with your own eyes to actually witness firsthand what you're seeing is what the reality of what's going on with training programs. Mm. 
the last thing I wanted to say on this topic relevant to the question online is that domestication is, is no small thing either. Yeah. I think that when you're dealing in the training of wild animals versus domestic animals, like it, it, it really is a different thing altogether. And I think that Many people, and you know, and I can talk to sort of the the shitty version of balanced training, right? The, the not balanced version of compulsive training. And yet the dog maintains a relationship with their handler, not because of their training, but in spite of it. Mm. And that's the effects of domestication. Like I see a lot of people who treat their dogs poorly and the dogs show appeasement behaviors and choose to stay. Whereas if that were a wild animal, it would leave. If it didn't attack you, if it didn't damage you in the meantime, it would leave because it doesn't feel that draw to be with the person or to be um, subservient to a person like domestication seems to do. I think for us, like, I, you know, this is why it's not my first thing that comes out of my mouth on this topic, because it's not the way I would answer the question. But I think for us as dog trainers, it really does fit into the category of looking at the relevance of the training of other animals. And, and I really want to be clear that I don't think that it's irrelevant. I think that there is a lot of crossover. There's a lot of interesting things. We've talked about how Mike Suttle travels with his chickens and does his chicken training. And I think there's much to gather from that, but it's not dog training, mm. right? There's relevance in doing that. It's totally worth doing. And you can develop a, a strong element of a particular type of skill set that will serve you well in dog training, but it isn't dog training. And I think that it's the same with when you talk about training of all kinds of different animals, it's a different thing. And anybody that sort of says that they are the same has not done much of it. You know, I think that to go back to Casey as well, we've had plenty of laughs about how he wants to do PSA with a lion. And what's interesting when he, you get into the, the weeds with it, with him, like, obviously that's a joke, right? But he's saying that a lion will play with you. A lion will bite and a lion will mouth at you and you can safely play with a lion. A tiger can't do that. A tiger will can't play with you in that way. It's going to kill you. All aggression, it bites with all aggression, not with all, with, with any play. What looks like pretty similar species to us are really managed and handled completely differently and trained in completely different ways by the experts that train them. Mm. When you can't even compare the way that you can train and hold a relationship with a lion and a tiger, you certainly can't then start making comparisons to those things to dogs because they are a different thing altogether. So I think to summarize the whole lot is I think there's heaps like there's good information in anybody that trains anything to do anything else. I, I'm super interested in, in the way that people train and, and manage people. I'm interested in the way that people train and manage dogs. I'm interested in the way that people train and manage all animals across the full spectrum of training, full stop. But I think that with that interest, I have to be careful in choosing what is relevant and understanding, you know, applying a template and saying like, will that work for dogs? And does that apply to the type and nature of training that I do with the type of dogs that I do? Because like I say, training tricks and monkey drills, there's much to be learned from the way that that is done with marine mammal training. Much to be learned. And it's very, very interesting. Mm. But behavior management, living with the dog, kenneling, social behaviors, that kind of stuff. I don't think there's much crossover. And, you know, I'm no expert in marine mammal training, but I can see what I can see. And I also know that if you have two dolphins or two sea lions or whatever that are aggressive towards each other, that's a management case. And I think that very often to have two dogs that are aggressive towards each other in their first instance, to then just say, oh, that's a management case forever, than to rather try and address it and solve the problem so that they can coexist or at least get to the point where they can walk past each other on the street on leash and not have a big blow up. I think that to give up on that and say, well, because my marine mammal training says those two dolphins should never be in the same pool. 
to then apply that template to dogs and say, well, this dog has to live in a kennel for the remainder of its life, or you should never leave the house with it, or you you have to join the 3am walking club. I think that's an unfair thing to do. I think that that is, is not drawing from the pros that world can give us. I think that that is drawing from the cons and applying a limitation to dog training that just doesn't need to exist. Mm. Do you think we should close this discussion with quickly talking about what happened in Queensland or is that too big a fish to fry right now? No, I think we could touch it. I think that all is relevant. And and I think, you know, I want to be careful. I don't know, like for anybody that's still listening, we have tried really hard. And I think most people would know we've tried really hard to be as truly balanced as possible. Right. And mm. really listen to everybody and draw from everything and, and provide a, a show and a space within our Facebook community and all that kind of stuff of where everybody's welcome. And we we're interested in everything everybody has to say, but intermittently this happens and it seems like to us it's every few weeks right it comes around again and it's because we're the ones that are having our what we know taken away from us what we know to be true said is is incorrect we've done many episodes on it we've talked about it many times is that the the prong collar ban in queensland well as of our recording today was it yesterday or the day before that that's gone through so prong collars are illegal to use in queensland there's a weird wording in it that says without, what is the exact wording? Without a reasonable excuse or something like that, mm. um, which I think is very dangerous. And I think that if you're getting around saying it was a win and the prong collars aren't banned because it says without a reasonable excuse, I think that's an irresponsible and foolish thing to do. My gut feeling is that that was put into the legislation so that the police can continue to use it. And I think that it'll be interesting. I think at some point somebody will be charged and they'll have to challenge that in court. And, you know, a reasonable excuse will probably be defined at that time. But it is super disappointing, mate. And I think the saddest part about that, like for us as trainers, it's very annoying. And for us, we look and go, fuck, like that is a tool that I very much need in my my Rolodex of answers that I can give people. It's not like we as trainers are putting a prong collar on every dog we see, but it's one of the options that we have and now we no longer have it. So it's very, very annoying, but it's not the end of the world. The people I feel really feel for, and you know, it's quite upsetting to imagine yourself in their position is the average pet dog owner. So there's probably thousands of people who woke up on Saturday morning who were failed by a trainer who were told to euthanize their dog or they spent thousands and thousands of dollars over many years trying to fix some sort of reactivity or whatever. And then they came across a trainer who taught them how to use a prong collar and they used that prong collar to effectively manage their dog. On Saturday morning, when they woke up and prong collars are now illegal, they have to make a choice. And that choice is, do they break the law or do they set, do they start being mistreating their dog by never taking it out? Or in some many cases, I'll bet you that, that there are many people who have now chosen to euthanize their dog. And so I th- like, I really feel for those people. I think that it would be a horrific situation to be in. As trainers for us, it's a huge pain in the ass and we will just have to use other techniques, right? We'll find a way we get through it. it it'd be a huge limitation. It's going to be a big problem, but the thousands and thousands of people who are faced with that choice now of mm. no longer being able to manage their dog or being a person that breaks the law. That's what they face. I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe that through Boyd and ADT, Australian Dog Training, we were probably the first people in Australia to bring the prong collar in. I'm happy to be challenged on this, but I remember it was about 30 years ago now, Pat O'Connor from Ray Allen came out and he brought a bag of them in his luggage because Boyd wanted to get them. He gave one to me and I said, what do you want me to do with that? And he goes, oh, this, he goes, I know you're having some problems with your dog with keeping him under control. Like he's pulling and lunging on the lead. He said, mate, I'm telling you, he goes, this will fix the the problem for you. He said, we'll be able to resolve it very quickly. 
um, with minimal fuss from the dog. And I looked at it and I handed it back to him. I said, oh, mate, I'm not going to put that on my dog. There's no way. And Pat stopped me and he said, Glenn, you seem like a smart guy. Let me give you some kind advice here. And he said, this is not what you think it is. And he Mm -hmm. said, I know the aesthetics of it are very displeasing. I know you're looking at it and judging it harshly because he said, everybody that I show these to or everybody that has used these in the past have had the same fundamental feelings. I'm not going to go into the long-winded story and we've been through this multitudes of times. From that... We at the club and certainly me, myself, when I broke away and started doing my own thing, I was selling hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prong collars. I was getting them in by the boxfuls of them. There was no problem in Australia. There was no restriction. There was absolutely zero fucking care about prong collars at that point. Nobody in government even knew what they were. You could import them by the, the hundreds and thousands if you wanted to. And I was bringing them in in boxes, boxes and boxes and boxes, hundreds and hundreds at a time. They were literally flying off the shelves. I was selling them at a great rate. And I was selling them to other trainers. I was selling them around the country. I was selling them to clients. I was fitting them for people. I was teaching them how to use it. I was running classes on proper etiquette and using a prong collar and the way to use it correctly. Never in my entire career, still to this date, has anybody that I ever know of ever come back to me and ever said to me, you fucking rogue, you sold me something that destroyed my dog or caused problems. Every single person that I kept in contact with, and I'm telling you, it's a fucking shitload of them. Every single one of those people came back to me and said, mate, this is fantastic. It's transformative. It's life-saving. It's done remarkable things for my dog. I can't thank you enough. It was just overwhelming praise and appreciation for being able to give them something that they could use to supplement their lifestyle with their dog and improve the lifestyle and improve the bond between them and their dog. Because many people at the start said, oh, I don't like the look of that. It looks like it could be bond diminishing and cause problems between the dogs. Never happened. Never, ever, ever happened. We've also spoken before, you and I have spoken, there's been multiple conversations around it, how vets tend to see the worst case scenario of things and they see when people are using tools incorrectly. They see the damage that people use from a multitude of different things. So, yes, I understand that they do see upsetting things and they do have to speak on that because they've got real-world experience with people who have fucked their dog over and they've done the wrong thing and created a physiological harm with their dog with a training tool. However, I don't know those people. And it may have happened because if somebody challenged me on it and said, well, it may have happened and they may not have come back to you, they may not have been confident or they may have been disgusted, there is possibility in that. However, when you're seeing people on a regular basis, they're involved in your training, they're involved in your clubs, they're involved with the other trainers that you know of, the people that you trained as well, and they've been a part of that community, and none of them have complained, you're witnessing with your very own eyes. And as I said before, when we're talking about marine animal training, these are things that I've physically witnessed. My own eyes have seen these people on multiples of occasion. Australian dog training was an enormous club in Victoria at that time. We had eight centres and there were hundreds and hundreds of people always coming to training. And my job as the training director and general manager at that time, I would go around and visit the other clubs with the other trainers and see them working with their dogs and never once again see a problem. So I know I'm talking about something that I can endorse personally because I've bared witness to it. I've been there. I've seen it. I'm not just talking theory. I'm not talking something which is just written on social media. I have been there. 
Enough said. I've made my point. And again, to flip-flop on this topic a little bit, I know people have hurt their dogs with correction chains and prong collars. I've also seen evidence where people have recorded that and shown the images of dogs being hurt with them. However, in thorough investigation, what you generally find out is there's people out there who sharpen their prongs. So they go out there and they file the ends down and make them razor sharp and then they stab into their dogs. Or when people leave them on over long periods of time, they're too tight, they're fixed too tight on the dog's neck, they start to get rubbing and callousing on the skin or pressure sores where they actually start penetrating or creating inflammation around the skin. Not so much penetrating, but creating inflammation. So yeah, these yeah, sort I of think things- that's the case. That's yeah. the case with most of the like horrific photos you see is that they're dogs that have grown into it, which is abuse of a different kind. And there's the same photos for harnesses and flat collars and all that kind of shit. Like people Absolutely. who've just put a collar on the dog yep. as a young dog and just never taken it off and the dog grows into it. And it, that's a horrific thing to do. It, it absolutely is. It's no matter that I get a little and feel a little spicy about some of these things because it really does piss me off that this happened in Queensland. And I think the Labor government has a lot to answer for with what's going to come next. It's political what they did and it's really gross and it's really yeah. offensive what they've done to the larger community. If you think this is a proud moment, anybody that's listening to this, if you think this is a great moment or a proud moment to celebrate, you're wrong. You're going to see, as you said, there are going to be dogs that will pay with their life for that. And you might think, yeah. well, maybe they shouldn't have had those dogs. Well, if you're involved in welfare and you're a welfare-minded person, that is a really stupid and unfair way to think. And yeah. and you should be ashamed of yourself for thinking that way because that is a terrible and a really defeatist way of looking at resolving something which was already resolved without your hand in it. Like it was fixed. Yeah. These dogs were living their best life. They could actually go out and enjoy working. Mate, I could tell so many stories of dogs that were. it was transformative for them. It changed their entire landscape. Yeah. It changed everything for them and their community and the communities that they were being involved with. Dogs that couldn't go to shows that could finally go back to shows. You and I know who that dog is. You know, I use um, I use examples of these on my when I'm educating people about dog behavior and aggression yeah. when I'm traveling around, and I show the videos of these dogs and how transformative it's been for them. This has never been one of those things where you, me, or any of the great trainers that I know of in the history of working and being involved with them, where they've gone out and said, "I endorse it on everything." None of those trainers has ever said that. None of them. Mm. They've said there's an application for it, and it's a staging plan where if we need it, we need it. Why not? Mm. Put it on the dog. Let's see how it works. They haven't endorsed it as a be-all and end-all and something that fixes and resolves all problems. And in fact, many trainers who are worth their salt will say, if this went on your dog, a particular type of dog, it may cause a problem. It may mm. exacerbate an, an already underlying issue. It's probably not a good idea. To bear witness to this and to see this actually unfolding, I'm super, super disappointed you could probably tell by the tone of my voice that I'm I'm extremely disappointed on this. There are a lot of people who are working hard who are providing evidence, which largely seems to have just been ignored. Thank you to Robbie Catter, who actually stood up in the Queensland region and defended it with some actual scientific basis and data behind him and was as appalled as we are as a training community. And he is a politician up there in Queensland. Robbie, mm. thank you for listening to the group. Thank you to all the girls, Kirsty and Brittany and Marsha and all the people who were behind it trying to resolve this issue. You made a good point before, Pat, which I really think warrants further discussion, is don't go and do anything stupid now that these laws have been passed. Don't put yourself on the yeah, map. you got to or, follow the law. Yeah. you got to follow the law. The issue is you get yourself an animal cruelty charge 
and that's you finished as a dog trainer, yep. right? So like, you got to think fucking clearly, don't do anything stupid. Inevitably, someone will get caught and hopefully whoever that is does fight it in court and we we find out what a reasonable excuse actually is. But yeah, uh, it's a shit situation. And, and from my point of view, mate, I think that my issue with it all and what I'm most disappointed about is me and you both and through this community, we've really done a lot to try and extend the olive branch and to try and heal wounds in the dog training industry within the factions that exist and try and erode the space between those factions and try and get people to get along. But even I find it fucking hard now when you see shit like this and you see people jumping up and down, there's two kinds that really shit me about this is people who I see excited about it online, who I know for a fact can't train a dog to save their life. Right? Yep. Like, and I've seen them, I've seen them work. I've had clients that have come to me from them, their management forever, like throw the cookies on the floor, drug the dog or kill it. And that's what they go for. And these are the people that are heads of organizations that are, are happy about this. And then other people who secretly use these tools and don't want to admit it. Mate, it's wearing thin. It really is. It's getting to the point where I, and I'm a pretty reasonable person and I, I like have been a big pusher to try and heal old wounds in the dog training industry. It's getting hard for me to even believe myself anymore. Yeah. And shit like this just continues to happen. It's getting hard for me to even listen to my own fucking message. So yeah, it's upsetting. And I think from my point of view, I think that we need to start sort of asking people to be more accountable. I think that a lot of people in the dog training space are trying to legislate their competition away. And I think that we should be, as trainers who are responsible and are skilled, we should be demanding to see some results from the others. And I think as well, like I said before, I think that if you're a secret balance trainer, if you're a person who tells other people, has a great big Facebook community of people who who thinks that you train in a particular way and you don't, your time will come. You're going to get found out. And when you do, don't come fucking to us and, and think that we're going to provide you any support because we're not. Effectively, you're a fraud and you should be exposed as being that fraud as well. The other point that I do want to make is you and I had the conversation about this the other day. And I'm not going to name the person on air. I don't think it's fair to do so without their endorsement to do it. It's a fairly high profile person in the balanced dog training world who's not so much a dog trainer themselves, but they've been involved in the gathering of scientific information about dog training. And I had a conversation with this person at length about this whole topic and about the communities coming together. And, you know, there was a time ago where I thought, when the balanced trainers and the positive trainers, the plus R trainers, and I'm not talking about all of them, please don't misread what I'm saying. I'm not trying to drive a wedge further between us or create a problem, but there are definitely people who were trying to win over the balanced trainers and have them all think, you know, see, we're all part of a big family together. But as this person pointed out to me, he said, Glenn, this is part of some of their plans where they want to bring us closer together because they've got nothing to lose and we've yeah. got everything to lose. He said, the tools going is exactly where they want it to go. He said, they're yeah. trying to make you think we're the good guys, like you want to be a part of us. And he said, but again, what you'll find is everything will be taken from you and you'll have nothing left that you were using before as a balanced trainer and you were doing right and you were using it ethically. And I thought about that. And at the time I thought, oh, that can't be true. That's so insidious to think that people would be thinking like this. But the more I see this, and then when I see the same comments that you're seeing when we're sharing these comments and from the same type of people, I think that person is right on the money. I think yeah. these whole trying to blend the organizations together, and again, I'm saying some of these people, not all of them, 
But I think when they're doing that, yeah, of course, they've got nothing to lose. It's going their way and they're happy about that. And I'm not because I'm convinced this will be a terrible day for some of these dogs and will be life-ending for many of them as well. And that is heartbreaking. That's absolutely heartbreaking. That goes against the ethos of what everybody is talking about. I was listening to Gary Jackson talking with Luke and Panos the other day on an episode, and this extremist way of thinking is really extreme. The modality that I'm thinking about at the moment is that that chant, the death before discomfort. It's a terrible ideology to even think about that. I think if you're talking about death before abuse, and we've talked about the difference between a little bit of discomfort versus abuse, it's an entirely different thing. It's an entirely different way of going about anything. Abuse is abuse and a little bit of discomfort in training is totally normal. It's going to happen in a wildlife. It's going to happen in a domestic life, no matter what. I'm mumbling and bumbling at the moment because I'm just so pissed off about the situation. I don't even think it's worth saying anything more about. No, you're right. It's just heartbreaking. It is. Exactly that. It's it's just so disappointing. And as I say, it's political. and f- well, it's just getting harder and harder to do what we've been trying to do. And, and it seems less and less worth doing. Yeah. Well, the anyway. echoes of that statement that you said to me about what the Dutch parliament said is, is it worth having these dogs anymore? Remember that, people, because you will start seeing the elimination or the complete reduction of species of dogs. And it's going to be some of your faults. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well. <laughs> uh, that's, that's it. Yeah, another episode of the Cato A spicy, another spicy um, one. Yeah. Well, as always, if you like what you hear, do us a favor and like, rate, share, subscribe, do all of that through whatever subscription service you download us from, then go to another one, do it there. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to jump into our Patreon. A few bucks a month gets you extra episodes in there. There's a huge backlog of educational stuff as well as live streams and all sorts of different things going forward. Another cool way to support the show is to jump into Teespring or Spring, they call it now, and get yourself some cool merch. There's all kinds of cool designs in there, thanks to many, many people around the world who have done those for us. Yeah. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is you jump into the discussion group. There's you can group source information there, or you could shoot us an email. We are info at the Goodbye.